keto freaks, guess what? The Kickstarter for Keto Fest is live. And in just a few days, we almost hit 30% of our goal. Now is the time. Go to KetoFest.com and pledge to reserve your tickets. Be part of history as Richard Morris and I turn the entire coastal town of New London, Connecticut, ketogenic for the weekend of July 15th and 16th, 2017. We're planning two days, Social Saturday and Science Sunday. Saturday is all about the pig roast, some amazing sous vide chuck steak, possibly some clam chowder, but cooking lessons, fitness lessons, walking tours, Segway tours, and the like. Saturday night, after having dinner at one of the many local participating restaurants, we're showing movies about low carb on the Guard Theater's 60-foot screen. Then on Science Sunday, you'll see talks by some of the brightest stars in the low-carb world, like Ivor Cummins, Jeffrey Gerber, Eric Westman, Dave Feldman, Megan Ramos, and Jimmy Moore. On Friday night, the 14th, there's a VIP party at my house where you can mingle with the speakers, but only 60 seats are available and they're going fast. We may also have a workshop on Friday during the day, but that's not yet solidified. So what are you waiting for? Go to KetoFest.com right now. The Kickstarter ends at the end of April, so claim your tickets today. Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February of 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia, and I've been on a ketogenic diet for three years. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've also lost about 80 pounds, and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of my progress through nutritional ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for three years in ketosis. Oh, yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. We have done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite the research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. We sure are. We love to cook and we love to eat. Yeah. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. Ha! Ha! <laughs> Take that. All right, Richard. So let's start podcast number 61, Metabolic Rate. So, Richard, do we have any corrections or apologies from last week? Yeah, i got to apologize for Miller. In fact, I'm going to apologize <laughs> for the entirety of Mark Miller other than his prostate. Right, <laughs> Which, his prostate's uh, good. Yeah, his prostate, we don't mind. That, that helped us start the show, but uh, That's right. <laughs> the rest of him, I apologize for. Uh, we had so much fun, and they're, they're such a great couple, aren't they? Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Great show. 
So it's probably a good time to mention that we're planning to do an extra show uh, midweek on my experiences in New London, meeting the mayor and eating at restaurants and prepping for Keto Fest. Yep. So that'll be just a separate show. It'll be in the feed, but it isn't going to count as show 62. 61 and a half. Yeah, right. (laughs) 61.5. All right. So let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Sure. So it's uh, limiting your carbohydrates to under 20 grams of carbs a day. Yeah. And basically, you're going to get your carbs just from incidental uh, sources like uh, leafy greens, uh, any vegetables that grow above the ground. Mm. Vegetables that grow below the ground like potatoes, sweet potatoes, carrots, beets, these are all storage mechanisms for plants to store energy during the winter. Yeah. And the problem with that is that storage form of energy for plants is carbohydrates, starches. And of course, you don't want any grains, no rice, no wheat, no pasta. That's right. That's the other sources. You don't want to eat any uh, pasta and, as you say, bread, uh, all of these Mm -hmm. kinds of uh, starchy foods. What they're going to do to you is they're going to further derange you. Yeah. And no fruit and no sugar either. Yeah. So you want to limit your food uh, during the day to mainly protein and fat. Uh, Most of your energy is going to come from fat. You actually really only need very little protein, just enough to maintain your body. We say between 1 and 1.5 grams per kilogram of lean body mass. Right. But it works out to be around about 100 grams a day of protein uh, will, will be right for most people. And most of your energy is going to come from fat. Either the fat that's on your plate or the fat from that Krispy Kreme you ate a decade ago. <laughs> My favorite Krispy Kreme analogy. So that's a ketogenic diet. Yeah, Richard. So how was your week? Um, it was pretty good. I actually went out for dinner tonight and I ate some carby foods. I ate a little bit of quinoa, about a teaspoon of quinoa. We went out, basically went out to a wine tasting at the at the National Press Club in Canberra. Nice. This week, uh, the uh, CEO is actually on the Kokoda Trail in Papua New Guinea, which is this trail that uh, uh, that Australian servicemen uh, walked during the uh, Second World War, and a lot of them died on it. So it's become like a it's become a rite of passage for Australians to go to. So he's gone off to there to 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 walk the Kokoda Trail in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. So Julie's acting CEO. So uh, uh, so we basically had a an event at the, pre- at the National Press Club, which was a wine tasting event, and we had like. Uh, five courses, and some, you know, we had a few carbs. Mm. Um, yeah. We had quite a lot of wine. So, uh, so today I pushed my carb limit. I certainly went over twenty grams. I'm somewhere between fifty and hundred grams okay. of carbohydrate. Tomorrow I'm going to pay for it. Um, I'm going to do a lot of exercise, uh, a lot of riding, mm. and Julie and I plan to fast for three days after this. Great. Uh, it's not really an atonement. It's just you get to the point where you feel like you've had a feast now. It's time to have a fast. And uh, You know, I think and, that is very smart and it's very germane to what we're talking about today. Yeah. So how was your week, Carl? My week was amazing. This was the first week that I put into practice Megan Ramos' advice to switch it up. So she told us that in uh, Breckenridge, right? Yeah, she t- basically told us that in Breckenridge. And, you know, if you go back and listen to the Breaking a Stall show or the Eating Patterns show, we knew that, you know, if you were in a stall, the way to get through it is to do a fast. Right. And you and I have both done several intermittent fasts and a couple extended fasts, but we always seem to bring the weight back on, right? Mm. 
Yeah, that's and right. This is just the way it worked. Yeah. And we thought, oh, well, what's going on here? And and Megan enlightened us by saying, what you're doing is on the days that you're not fasting, you're you're eating a calorie restricted ketogenic diet. And and the problem with that is that that lowers your metabolic rate. So right. if you're going to do this intermittent fasting thing, you should on the days that you're eating really really eat and eat mm-hmm. a lot more. You know, I'm I, I've been eating twice the calories on my feasting days, all ketogenic, but really a lot of calories and and boost it up nice. because what happens is when you reduce your calorie intake, your metabolism goes down. The idea is that you want to eat a lot of fat, eat a lot of calories, because that raises your metabolic rate, which yeah. we're going to talk about later. Yeah, we'll talk about that later on in the show. But that's so you've seen a result this week, right? Well, like, yeah, and let me tell you what my results were. Sure. So before I started, like you, I had some carbs, and and uh, it wasn't the kind of thing where I was eating carbs every day, mm. but I was eating a restricted calorie ketogenic diet every day, and I'm talking about one meal per day, and I was eating this. Maybe two meals per day, but you know, restricting my calories a little bit, maybe yeah. twenty five hundred calories, which doesn't seem like a lot, you know. But uh, and I got to this point where I just kept getting hungrier and eating more, and uh, it, it 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 slowly put on weight. Mm. And so, you know, my lowest weight was two eighty six. I got all the way up to three hundred pounds. Right. And it happened because I was eating at night which is never good for me. Mm. I was, you know, drinking wine, yeah. which, uh, you know, yeah, I had I had given up all hard liquor, but I still drink wine a little bit. Uh, and, you know, it happened with a, with a binge at mm. the end of it that I was just like, all right, I'm going to stop right now and, uh, and do uh, three days of fasting. So the next morning, and I'm at 300 pounds, right? The next morning I started... Uh, a three-day fast with keto coffee, lots of coconut oil, and also a pinch of cayenne pepper. Right. And I got that idea from Jeannie Siegel. Shout out to her. Thank you, Jean. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't measure or count calories. Midday, I had a mug of bone broth with a tablespoon of butter melted in it. And at mm-hmm. night, I went right for salt water with a dash of chipotle chili pepper powder and Morton light salt. Right. You know, so I can get some potassium. Yeah, yeah. At this point, I don't know if I need that extra potassium because, as Megan says, um, salt retains potassium. So at, at this point, I'm probably okay without it, but mm-hmm. I still did it. So on the second and third days of the fast, I drank only black coffee and my hot salt water concoction. At the end of my fast, my fingers were getting cold, and that's when I knew it was time to stop. Yeah. Um, interestingly, I'd lost seven pounds. Right. So I broke the fast with a handful of nuts and then a big meal after about 30 minutes. I feasted for three days, Richard, eating two meals a day in a six or seven hour window. Mm. And I actually overate a couple times. I ate a whole bag of macadamia nuts Wow! a day, you know, and that's like 950 calories. I'll post a link to the nutrition information there. Uh, lots of fat. I was poaching burgers and butter, eating ribeyes. I did fried fish. I took uh, two haddock fillets and I ate um, most of them. Kelly had like one and I had the rest and, you know, fried in olive oil with keto breadcrumbs, entire jar of tartar sauce. Mm. So this must have been three quarters of a cup, maybe a cup of tartar sauce in one meal. Guess what? 
I didn't gain an ounce in those three yeah. days that I feasted. Not one ounce. Wow. And so I ate double the calories that I usually eat when I'm eating, and I didn't gain an ounce. So then the first day back to fasting, I started with keto coffee again and salt water concoction with a tablespoon of butter later and a couple more of those without the butter afterwards, exactly like my first day. Mm. The next morning, I lost three pounds. Wow. So that's 10 pounds in seven days. That's pretty incredible. Also, the night of the first day of the second fast, I had uh, blood sugar the lowest ever recorded. It was 66. So just to repeat, you fasted for two and a half days, yep. you feasted for three days, yep. you fasted for one day, and you went back to regular eating for a day. And now we are seven days later, and you've lost 10 pounds. Right. I lost three after that first day fast, and then I did another day of feasting yesterday and didn't gain an ounce the next day. That there, 10 pounds in a week yeah. after eating a lot of food, that is an awesome teaser for the remainder of the show. That's <laughs> right. So stick around. So let's get to the section that we call Mail. <laughs> Mail. Mail. All right, buddy. You got one? Yeah, I've got one. So I got a direct message from Dave on our ketogenic forums, and he says to me, Hi, I'm a 33-year-old fellow Aussie from Brisbane, okay. which is also where I come from. Oh, yeah. And he says, I started fasting randomly at the beginning of the year after reading online that it was healthy. And then my younger brother, who is a fledgling doctor, suggested keto. I haven't looked back since, though I don't have the health issues that you've had. I am not hugely overweight, but I was trending up quite rapidly, and keto has helped me to shed that extra kilograms, and I feel great. One of my main motivators is my father, and he's quite overweight, and I worry about his health. Hmm. I just heard on your podcast that your father is an anaesthetist, he's talking to me, uh, and you convinced him to go keto. And my father is also an anaesthetist, and so the approach that you use to convince your father might work for mine. Any advice? Obviously, I won't be able to spout the science off the top of my head, uh, but some pointers to get through to an individual immersed in a lifetime of incorrect dietary practices would yeah. be good. Uh, cheers, and thank you to Carl and you for the amazing podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Dave. Yeah. For the very kind words. Um, I guess I should say my father hasn't gone keto himself. Um, he passed an oral glucose tolerance test, so he doesn't consider himself to be a candidate. That's where they give you 75 grams of glucose and then test your blood sugar every half an hour for five hours. And they look at the graph of uh, your uh, glucose response mm. and determine whether you're able to clear that glucose quickly enough. Yeah. Of course, that doesn't tell you a lot because it's the insulin that's used to clear that glucose that, that yeah. that's doing the work, and that basically tells you whether somebody is deranged or not. Mm. Yeah. So he doesn't consider himself a candidate for keto himself, but he is uh, paying for all of his grandchildren to get an insulin test when they're in the mid twenties, which is probably the ideal time to Great to idea. really start. Yeah. Checking to see, do a craft test and see if you're uh, uh, insulin resistant. Absolutely. But he's told me that uh, I'm probably on the right track with this approach as a strategy for beating type 2 diabetes. Uh, and his father was diabetic, which is something I only learnt um, about a month ago. Oh. So uh, it was new to me that my grandfather was uh, type 2 diabetic. Wow. And in fact, he died of a heart attack, and that probably was caused by uh, his diabetes. Mm. 
So one of my brothers has actually gone keto with his entire family. Mm. Uh, another one doesn't need it. He's always been lean all his life and his kids seem to be okay. Um, and the third one probably needs it but likes his beer and pizza. So, mm. you know, I can't change my own family. So all I can do is change as many people as are receptive to the information that I've got. Yeah. Um, so I think if uh, your father is used to treating diabetics, then it's worth explaining the homeostasis of glucose control. And he probably knows this. He probably learned it in medical school and he's probably just forgotten how it works. But basically what happens is when you eat sugar and starch, your glucose goes high. Right. Now, your body is designed to keep glucose in a tight range between 5 and 6 millimoles per litre, yeah. I guess probably between 90 and 100 milligrams per deciliter. Yeah. And when it goes above that range, your pancreas produces insulin, and insulin is used to push that glucose into cells to clear it. And yeah. so it's designed to either push glucose into cells that are going to burn it, like muscle cells, or it's going to push it into fat cells that are going to turn it into fat and store it. Yeah, That glucose shouldn't be left in the bloodstream because high glucose is really quite dangerous. It's corrosive. That's right. It'll corrode your arteries and give you heart disease. So um, the body's designed to stop glucose from going too high by producing insulin. Mm. And people who are diabetic, that mechanism is broken. Either we don't make it enough insulin if you're type 1 diabetic or we make too much insulin and our body has become used to ignoring it, which yeah. is type 2 diabetic. Yeah. But the liver will also make glucose if your blood glucose goes too low. So if your insulin overdoes the job and your blood sugar goes low or you just haven't eaten for a couple of days and you know you've drawn down the blood the glucose in your blood mm. what happens is the liver kicks into action and it makes glucose and that's like the second homeostatic regulator yeah gluconeogenesis gluconeogenesis exactly so you've got two regulators you've got dealing with high glucose which is your insulin and dealing with low glucose which is your liver yeah so um if your ability to make insulin or use it is broken, then uh, if you keep glucose at the low range by not eating any, then your liver will keep you in the safe zone. So right. what we're doing in a, on a ketogenic diet is we're relying on our livers to keep us in the in the tight range, yep. and uh, and and the liver that that mechanism is really why we don't go into a coma when we when we go to sleep. Right. Uh, so you know it works in as Tim Noakes says it works in pretty much every liver is able to generate that uh, that glucose. Right. And the problem, I guess, for doctors, they have to think about this in terms of what our standard medical treatment is, which is basically medication. And the problem is diabetic medication can't keep us in the range between 5 and 6 millimoles per litre, which is the range that the body would naturally keep us in. We medicate people to basically 7 millimoles uh, we, because we're too scared of hypoglycemia. We're right. too scared if we give them too much drugs, it'll overcorrect and it'll take them too low. And that puts them in the zone below 5 where they – you know, it could go into a coma. So basically, they don't understand gluconeogenesis. They don't understand that the liver is there as a backup system. Well, that's it. If if you're going to overwhelm the system with drugs to push the glucose down, the liver can't compete. Yeah. And so, it, 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 if you give somebody enough insulin and enough enough exogenous insulin and drugs that that force sugar out of the blood, then if you overcorrect, what will happen is they'll go so low, they'll have what's called a hypoglycemic event, which is where they have not enough blood glucose, mm -hmm. their brain won't be able to run and they'll go into a coma. Right. So we're used to medicating somebody really 
to 7 millimoles, but the body is used to keeping blood sugar in the range of between 5 and 6. Mm. And the problem with medicating somebody to 7 millimoles is that blood glucose over about 6 millimoles causes beta cells, to be, and that's the cells that make the insulin, to, to slowly be killed by glycotoxicity, too much glucose, mm. and they get killed faster than they can reproduce. Mm. So below 6 millimoles, you're reproducing these cells faster than they can die off. Mm. And above six millimoles, they're dying off faster than they can reproduce. So mm -hmm. this is the problem is the standard of care is designed, uh, whether intentionally or not, to progress the diabetic disease slowly until the point where you just can't make any insulin at all and now you have to inject it and all of the complications that happen from that. Yeah. So, so I guess the, 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 the point of a ketogenic diet, and, and the way that I would explain this to a doctor is that a ketogenic diet enables us to use this backup secondary mechanism of glycostasis, of being able to maintain our glucose using our liver. Without drugs. All you got to do is just not eat any sugar or starch. Right. So, Dave, I would say that this is probably the best way to explain it to your doctor, Dad, and uh, I hope that makes some sense for him. Yeah, good luck. Good luck with that. So, Carl, have you uh, got some mail today? Yes, I do. And uh, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to jump into our content for today because right. this is a post in our ketogenic forums by Fiorella, mm. who's been great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great member and very, very helpful. Uh, and Fiorella says, here's a simple diagram that I used recently to help someone understand how I employ fasting and keto in efforts to lose weight. Right. And this diagram is so perfect and it directly reflects my experiences in this last week. So imagine, and it's all silhouette, so imagine a Sisyphus-like figure pushing a big round rock up a hill. So Sisyphus was the Greek hero who was condemned to forever push a rock up a hill and, and when he woke up every morning, the rock was back down the bottom of the hill and he would spend yeah. the whole day pushing it all the way back up the hill again. Right. And uh, the endless struggle, right. you know, it's representative of that, you know, the struggle that gets you nowhere. Mm. So, so here's a silhouette of somebody pushing this big boulder up a hill that's almost as tall as the person. Right. And inside the boulder is the word fasting. And there are arrows that show rotation, all right? So fasting is this boulder because it's hard. Right. The incline of the hill is about a 45, maybe 40 degree angle. And it says weight loss journey with an arrow pointing up. So they're using fasting to push themselves up along through their weight loss journey. That's right. But there's a wedge under the, the stone that keeps it from rolling backwards and it says keto. So keto is the backstop. Keto is the backstop. Nice. So the idea is that fasting is challenging yeah. and you fast when you can fast for weight loss. Mm. And then you stick that wedge of keto in when, you, when you're tired of fasting and you feast. Right. But keto. On ketogenic food. Yeah. yeah. And in a, in a, for me anyway, I feasted on ketogenic food twice as much as I'm used to in a day, but within that seven hour window. Yeah. And, uh, and I, like I said, my experience is reflecting other people's experience in our forum that say they have the same exact results. Yeah. And I am just completely blown away by this. Yeah. So you're really keen to get onto this. So we should get to the meat of this 
podcast. Let's get it. Metabolic yeah. rate. Yeah. I got to start by saying, Richard, that when we talk about calories in, calories out is right. an effect, not a cause. Yeah. What we're really saying is, you know, what you eat has an effect on your metabolic rate. That's right. What you eat, when you eat it. Yeah. Right? And your metabolic rate determines how much weight you lose. Um, here's a question for you, Richard. Sure. If you eat a lot of fat and then sit down on the toilet and 50% of it goes out of your body, is that calories out? <laughs> yeah, it is. Do you remember Olestra? It was like a special type of uh, fat. Fat, that wasn't was, it? Yeah, Oil? and it was made from inst- – now, regular fat is a three-carbon uh, glycerol with – uh, a it's basically triglyceride. It was a three carbon glycerol with uh, three fatty acids attached to it. Okay. Well, Olestra is a glucose molecule with six fatty acids attached to it. Huh. So, uh, and and we couldn't digest it. Right. Our bodies are not able to digest this stuff. You probably remember they used to make crisps. Potato chips. With Alestra. And do you remember the warning that they used yeah. to give on these things? May cause <laughs> anal leakage. Anal leakage. Well, that's exactly what was happening is that you yeah. eat this fat, your body can't digest it, it goes straight through your system, and you end up with anal leakage, which is basically no. the fat going straight through your system. So that is part of the calories out. It's just the oil. It's not the it's not other fats. It's just that particular oil that went yeah, through the system. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, our bodies can't digest triglycerides. I guess it's not called a triglyceride. I think it's probably called a hexglyceride, but our bodies just can't digest. We can't crack them open and turn them into fatty acids that we can yeah. burn. So they just go th- straight through the system. Stupid right. t- kind of food to be adding to our to our food source. Yeah. But um, so not all energy that you eat goes into your body. You can't metabolize all of the energy that you eat. A lot right. of carbohydrates that you eat go straight through your system. Uh, dietary fiber, for yeah. example. You may actually be lucky. You may have some bacteria in your large intestine that's able to uh, crack some of these indigestible fibers and turn them into short-chain fatty acids and the like. Yeah. But for the most part, dietary fiber goes straight through your system. Uh, pr- a lot of protein will go straight through your system. And as we say, I mean, fat, you know, if you have floating stools, that's because you've got a lot of fat that's uh, come straight through your system. So, mm-hmm. so the amount of energy that you actually take into your body is a fraction of the food that you eat. It might be 100%. Right. It could be 10%. It depends on your ability to digest uh, calories across your gut wall. All right, so that covers calories in. What about calories out? What are the levers there? Yeah, so calories out. We think of calories out being the amount of exercise that you use. And somebody, there was a famous doctor in the UK just this week who came out and said that obesity is a is a disease of what was it, walking deficiency syndrome. (laughs) So he was claiming that people just don't get out and exercise enough. Now, we know that we've had people in our group who've lost, like Shane Barnbrook, who was on show 42, lost 100 pounds, and the guy's a quadriplegic. So he clearly doesn't have walking deficiency syndrome. Yeah, It's the, uh, the issue about calories out is that what we know of as... Things that we could do during the day that's going to consume more calories, like going for a run on a treadmill or something mm. like that, is going to use a fraction of the energy that we're going to use just sitting about doing nothing. Right. So 
in a regular day, you're going to use between 2,000 and 3,000 kilocalories of energy. Yeah. Your body's going to just consume that if, if you just sit on the couch. Yeah. If you get up and go for a run on a treadmill for, for, for an hour, you'll use an additional 250 kilocalories. So how do I increase my calories out if running on a treadmill is going to only give me 250, 300 calories? Yeah, so so really what you have to do is you have to convince your body that you're in a time of energy plenty. Uh, if you tell your body that it is running out of energy by giving it not enough, uh, then your body is going to start basically it's it's a it's in a budgetary crisis for your body. So right. it starts sequestering energy. I guess it's like a process of furlough. It says, okay, we're not going to create as many hair follicles this week. We're right. not going to heat up the body. We're going to run at a bit of a cooler temperature because producing heat costs energy. We really don't need that. Right. Uh, we're not going to run the immune system at a higher rate. Uh, it's a budget. That's right. Exactly right. So your body determines how much energy it's going to spend based on what energy is coming in and what its expectations of energy going out are. So what you're really saying is your metabolic rate, which is the rate at which your calories out are being burned, yeah. right? Your, your calories out rate is your metabolic rate. That's right. In order to make that high, you need to eat more, as I did when I feasted on those days, and I, I got my metabolism, my metabolic rate up really high by eating That's more. That's right. And then you fasted. It turned out that I didn't gain weight. Right. And then I fasted, and I started burning body fat at that same rate. Yeah, at a higher rate. At a higher rate, which yeah. probably started to slow down yeah. after a few days. And so that's why you switch it up, and that's why you keep cycling. Yeah, so it takes a, it takes a couple of days for your body to adapt to the new rules and basically your body when you start off you feast for three days and your body's going woohoo we're in we can run every single energy using process that we've got because we're in a time of plenty and then all of a sudden you shut off the spigot yeah and now you're in a fast and your body is still running at that high rate because you ate so much the last few days yeah, that's right. So your body is still running at that high rate. It needs to readjust, and it's going to take a couple of days to do that. Um, by the time it's readjusted, you're ready to finish your fast and ready to start on the next feast. And so um, it, it's kind of like a kid on a skateboard sort of pushes off uh, with one foot off the skateboard and kicks a couple of times to build up a bit of speed, then jumps with both feet on the skateboard and zooms along it a little bit until he slows down. And then he gets off the skateboard and he kicks a couple more times and he gets back on the skateboard. So it's a little bit like that process. You basically maintain your high metabolic rate to uh, basically burn through energy as quickly as you can. So what effect does exercise have on metabolic rate? Everything I read online says... You know, if you want to increase your metabolic rate, or actually what they do say is they say, if you want to lose weight, you need to create a, a calorie An deficit. An energy deficit, right? yeah. An so, energy deficit. And that's yeah. basically the whole calories in, calories out mantra all over again. But right. it, it does sort of seem plausible that exercising will increase your metabolic rate. Is that the case? Yeah, but it's a very small amount of your actual energy consumption during the day. 
So there was a study done in 1988 by Stephen Finney, and this was a study where they locked 12 overweight patients, women I think it was, in a metabolic ward for four to five weeks, Mm. and every single calorie they ate and expended was measured. Okay. And they were fed a hypocaloric diet. Basically, that's a diet with not enough calories to maintain their body weight. So they were slowly losing weight over the the four to five weeks that they were in there. Okay. And they were fed enough uh, protein to maintain their muscle mass, so one and a half grams per kilogram of ideal body weight. And the candidates were split into two groups. The control group was completely sedentary for the entire time, and the intervention group performed 27 hours of supervised cardiovascular exercise, which was running on a treadmill sometimes up to two hours in a day. Wow. Common sense would tell you that the intervention group that did the extra 27 hours of exercise over Mm. the time should, in theory, burn more calories. Um, And they ate the same amount, so they should have lost more weight, right? Yeah. You would think. Well, controversially, both groups lost a similar amount of weight in the four weeks, Uh, about 6.5 kilograms for the exercises and 6.9 kilograms for the couch potatoes. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, so the couch potatoes actually lost more weight, but it's a non-significant amount. And, you know, there's other factors in there too, like exercise builds muscle. I can see how that would happen and and even itself out. But but even if you account for that, they're very similar. Yeah. So I guess the question you have to ask is how can they lose more weight if they did less exercise, the control group? And the answer is that the researchers measured the actual energy use of all participants every moment of the time that they're in the ward. Mm. And they measured it both when they're on the treadmill and when they're at rest. And for the Mm. first week, the resting energy expenditure, that is the energy that your body uses at rest of both groups dropped by 10%. And that's down to the fact that they were on a hypercaloric diet. So they're being given less calories coming in, so their body adjusts the amount of energy they use by 10% down, uh, to cater for the fact that there's temporarily less energy coming in. Right. After the first week, the resting energy expenditure in the control group, that is the couch potatoes, stayed at that new level for the remainder of the experiment. Wow. It gets really interesting when you look at the resting energy expenditure of the intervention group. These are the exercises. It continued to drop by a further 17%. Wow. So for two hours, they're on a treadmill burning up more calories. The other 22 hours of the day, they're burning less energy than the people who've been sitting on the couch the whole time. Interesting. So this really tells us that there is a the body is maintaining a homeostasis. Right. It's balancing the books the whole time. Yep. From the energy that's coming in to the energy that's going out. And this is one of the reasons why when we drop insulin, which is the hormone that's blockading fat from coming out of our fat cells, Mm. when we drop insulin by going on a low-carb diet, all of a sudden we start losing body fat. Sure. This is because we're changing the fundamental mathematics of the budget that the body is using. Right. And so, you know, all of a sudden, we're not only are we able to access the energy in stored body fat – but we feel like going for a run. We feel like eating yeah. less food. You know, Energized. all these things contribute to the amount of energy that we're going to put in our body, the amount of energy that we're going to take out of our body. Yeah. Uh, it all comes down to our hormonal milieu that is going to determine how much body fat that we're storing. And so that's exactly what we saw in play during my last week of feasting and fasting in this cycle, isn't it? Yeah, you drove up your metabolic rate. 
drove up my metabolic rate, allowed my body to feast on its own fat for three days, mm. and then stopped it and continued to uh, boost up the metabolic rate and go around again. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Are you cycling? Now, I'm not sure that this will keep going. I think Megan made the point that your body gets used to patterns, and so it right. could well be that your body might get used to feast-fast cycles and maybe you need to switch it up a little bit more and maybe go sure. back to one meal a day or whatever it is that works for you. But it's interesting. You've definitely got off your plateau by oh, yeah. Yeah. taking advantage of this. And not only that, but it's sustainable. Yeah. I, ca- I could do this. Well, yeah, it's an enjoyable way to be. Yeah. It's interesting that overfeeding, which I guess is what you do for two days, you're overfeeding. You're sure. not going on a calorie deficit. If you were to average out the amount of calories in to your body over the past week, it's probably the same as it's ever been. Yeah, you may be right. You're affecting calories out. You're affecting your metabolic rate. You're affecting the rate at which you can burn energy. Yeah. And there's been several overfeeding studies. For example, uh, Ethan Sims did a whole bunch uh, in, I think, in the 70s, and they were like he did the Vermont uh, prison studies where he uh, got volunteers amongst a prison population and overfed them dramatically. Uh, and in some cases, their basal metabolic rates jumped. Like some people jumped from 2,000 kilocalories a day to to – uh, you know, nine and a half thousand kilocalories per day. Right. Uh, one guy was uh, was his metabolic rate was forty megajoules per day. Yeah. So, and, and a lot of them eventually did put on weight. Obviously, mm. you know, you're going to overfeed that much. You're going to put on weight continuously. But the yeah. interesting that yeah, that, the interesting thing that happened is that uh, that they constrained these prisoners from being able to exercise. They weren't allowed in the yard. They weren't allowed to do any exercise. And a lot of them spontaneously had like crazy legs where, you know, their legs would just <laughs> go crazy all the time just trying to burn off energy. Right. And their their body temperature increased, and which is, again, burning off more energy. Basically, their bodies just decided to, uh, hey, we're in a glut of energy. Let's do all of the things that we've always wanted to do but have always, you know, not done because we've been short on energy, you know. Right, right. And so it was party time for their bodies. Yeah. And then when they um, stopped the overfeeding part of the experiment and they went back to eat whatever you want, a lot of these guys went back to, you know, to, to not eating for like three or four days and, mm. and eating a very small amount of food because they were so full because of, you know, because of the overfeeding process. Right. Um, and yet their metabolic rates stayed high at, you know, nine and a half thousand kilocalories per day wow. until they got back to their original weight. And then, and only then, their metabolic rate dropped back down again. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and it was a very fast drop of body weight mm. because their metabolic rates were so high. Imagine if you're burning through 2,000 calories a day and the guy sitting next to you is burning through 9,500 kilocalories a day. I want what he's having. Yeah, I want, yeah exactly. <laughs> I want what he's having. That's, that's what Mark yeah. Miller's like. I mean, Mark Miller is a prodigious burner of energy. Mark, who yeah. was on our show last week. Right. And Karen, you and I, we, we, uh, Parsimonious, right? <laughs> Burners uh, of energy. Well, not anymore, know? Richard. I've cracked the code, <laughs> no. and I, I know that yeah. there's a lot of people that are doing the same. Now that's awesome. Well, Richard, the calories in, calories out theory 
continues to be the prevalent conventional wisdom. Um, but every once in a while, you see these stories of things that uh, speak to metabolic rate being the real determination of how many calories you're burning. And wasn't there um, a study done on the people who went through the Biggest Loser show where they tried to compete to lose weight and they followed up with them afterwards, uh, what, a, a year or two after to find out what had happened to them? Yeah, it was actually six years after. And it oh, was wow. done by Kevin Hall from the National Institute of Health. Huh. Uh, and uh, this was a follow-up of the Biggest Loser uh, which is, as you know, is a TV show where you know people go in and they're like uh, their BMI is uh, fifty, and they come out at the end of it, their BMI is thirty, and uh, it's like a thirty-week competition, and the person who wins gets quarter of a million or a million or whatever it is, you know, a whole pack of money, and then Kevin Hall went and followed these people for six years afterwards, and he did a bunch of metabolic testing to to determine what their resting metabolic rate was when they went into the competition. And now these people had a BMI of, uh, of 50. Uh, body fat was about 50% body fat. And their uh, resting metabolic rate when they started this process was about 2,600 kilocalories. Yeah. Um, I'm just working on averages here and right. we'll link to the data in the show notes. But by the end of the competition, they'd gone from a BMI of 50 uh, and a body fat percentage of you know, 49, down to a body fat percentage of 28 and a BMI of 30. So they'd lost a lot of weight. Yeah. And they'd basically gone back to a normal range. Uh, they were probably just a little bit on the overweight end of normal. Yeah. Their resting metabolic rate had dropped from 2607 to 1996. So it had dropped, I guess you could say, almost 25%. Uh, their metabolic rate had dropped. Their physical activity in the process, and it's basically measured in kilocalories per kilogram per day. It's a okay. complicated measure. But basically, a measure of the physical activity was 5.6 when they started the competition, and it was 10.0 at the end of the competition. Okay. So that doubled the amount of exercise that they were doing. Right. Okay? And as you know with these things, they had extremely restricted their caloric intake. Sure. So, uh, so the metabolic rate had had dropped by uh, by more than a quarter, and their uh, exercise had doubled, and their caloric intake had decreased. So they did this follow up six years after. Now their BMI had at the beginning of the competition was fifty, and at the end of the competition was thirty, and the BMI at the end of the six year follow up. Yeah. Was 44. Wow. So they'd almost gone back to where they started. They started at 50, they went to 30, and they're back up to 44. Their body fat started at 49, went to 28, and has gone back up to 44.7, almost 45. So they're almost six years later, they're almost back to where they started. Wow. The interesting thing is that their physical activity started out at the beginning of the competition at 5.6. At the end of the competition, it was 10.0. Yeah. And at the end of the six years, it was 10.1. Huh. So they continued to exercise. They continued to exercise and they also continued to calorically restrict because ah. they were that, that was the that was the technique that, that had got them so much success in the show. The problem is it's not an endless well. Right. You you continue to drop your metabolic rate, you continue to drop weight when you get down to your current weight, your body is completely starving. That's exactly it. So Let's talk about the resting metabolic rate, yeah. which started off at 2,600 
at the end of the competition, it was 1996, so just under 2000. Wow. At the end of the six-year follow-up, their resting metabolic rate was even lower. It was 1903, <sighs> so it was 100 uh, kilocalories per day lower than it was at the end of the competition. Wow. So they'd continued to keep up their exercise. They'd continued to keep up with their caloric restriction. Basically, their metabolic rate went through the floor. It seems so unnecessary. It's utterly unnecessary. It's a zero-sum game. Yeah. The law of thermodynamics requires that the energy going into a system and the energy going out of a system has to remain constant. Yeah. And so um, you have to get it from somewhere. And these People are all insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Their insulin levels will continue to force them to be hungry when they they have less than the amount of body fat that the insulin determines that they should have on their you know energy stored in body fat. Well, let me tell you something, man. The last week has been just wonderful. I feel great when I fast, and I feel great because I get to eat twice as much food as I normally do when I eat. That's awesome. And I'm telling you, like, I didn't gain an ounce on those days that I feasted. I think that yeah. the key is just keep switching it up. So thank you, Megan. Yeah, thank you very much, Megan. That was awesome. Before we get into our recipe section, I want to give a mm. shout out to our friend Les Haley. Right. I got a call from Les last night. He said he went to his doctor and had a final weigh-in. And he had no idea. He thought he had lost 50 pounds or so. 88 pounds. Wow. Since October. Now, now Les is the bass player, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and he, he was on insulin last year before he went keto. Yeah. And he started keto in October. Yeah. And in January, he was on half his dosage of insulin, right? Right, right. And then last time I heard, which is like three weeks ago, yeah. he'd gotten totally off insulin, right? No more insulin. And now his doctor says the next step is to come off the tablets. Wow. Metformin, and he's taking another uh, another medicine, which I Sulfonuria, can't I, I probably. remember. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. But he says that's the next step. But his doctor is flabbergasted and he's <laughs> a, he's another rock star in New London. Nice. Literally. So is he going to be playing bass at Keto Fest? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Um, Keto Fest looks like it's going to happen yeah. based on our Kickstarter. It, yeah. We're up to 44% funded now. Nice. So that... You know, we got 19 days to go as yeah. of now. Yeah, for everybody who's signed up so far, thank you very much. Uh, it's not going to happen until we get to 100%, mm. but I think well, there's a good chance we're going to get to 100% if everybody chips in. There is a good chance. I think we were at over 30% in the first week, and now we're 44 That's awesome. And 19 days to go. Also, I want to mention here the Two Keto Dudes fan club. Sure. So what we're doing is we're moving to a model of advertising called CPM, mm -hmm. which means that people pay per 1,000 impressions. Yeah. And the whole network that we're plugged into needs to know some demographic information about our audience before they can start advertising with us. All right. right. So in order to encourage you to go answer a few questions about yourself, we're starting this fan club. So if you go to fanclub.2keto.com or click the fan club button on our website, 2ketodudes.com, it'll take you to this little survey. And seriously, it's four or five questions. It's nothing big. You answer that. Now you're in the fan club. And every show starting next week, we're going to pick a random winner. Uh, and then give them something, whether, whether it's a discount at our, our gear store or a mug or something else. We'll, we're we're going to give you something. 
Maybe it's stuff from sponsors. Yeah, we don't care about the answers in the survey. It's all for advertisers. All right, and that brings us to recipes. 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 All right, I gotta go first today. I took a nod from Richard Morris, my friend here. What have I done now? Last week, his recipe was butter poached steak. Oh yeah. Yum. I didn't do a butter poached steak, but I did eat, and I mentioned this in the show, butter poached cheeseburgers. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah. I mean, why not? Uh, yeah. Cheeseburger takes less time to cook. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's delicious. And now I'm not going to eat a burger any other way. Really? That good? Oh, it's that good. Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, Moist, okay. delicious. Ah, perfect. <laughs> so here's what you do. You melt a stick of butter, and I mm -hmm. mean a stick of butter. If you want yep. a stick and a half of butter, go ahead. If you want two sticks of butter, I don't care. Knock yourselves out. Half a stick is not enough. <laughs> half a stick is not enough, correct. Right. So melt that in a six-inch saucepan. And the reason I say six-inch, if you got a small saucepan, yep. that means that you can the butter that you put in there is going to be at a higher level, right? Yeah. If it's in a fry pan, it's just going to go down around the edges and yeah. you, know, you won't have anything to poach in. I've got some high-edge saucières, which is a Me too. kind of French saucepan that's perfect for this. Yep. Perfect for this. So season the butter. Add a teaspoon of coarse salt or Himalayan salt or whatever you like, ground pepper to taste, maybe some onion powder, some garlic powder, other spices that you like on your burger. If you like uh, Montreal steak seasoning, that's a favorite, okay. you know. Or horseradish you could use. Horseradish, you could use some adobo, you could use some, I mean, what a cumin, whatever you like. Nice. All right, so now shape a one quarter to a one half pound burger, or, you know, who cares? I don't care how big you make your burger, but shape a burger so that it almost takes up the entire saucepan. Just give yourself enough room to flip it, right? Mm. So that makes it thin. That makes it thinner. You're going to pound it out a little bit thin. Yeah. And you essentially drop that into the butter. So you don't need to completely cover the burger with melted butter. You can if you want, but just make sure that it's submerged about halfway up. So are you cooking the butter at 50 Celsius like we were with the steak? Or? I don't know exactly, but on my propane stove, it's low heat. Right. Okay. So it is a low heat. It's a simmer. Yeah, it's a simmer. Yeah. And, you know, you can only get so low on an open flame. Yeah. But true. it is, you know, it's low heat on an open flame. Yeah. And if you want to turn it up to melt it faster, that's fine. But, you know, I'm going to, before I put the burger in, it's going to be on low. Yeah. So now you cook it over low heat for three or four minutes, just until the sides start to look cooked. And, you know, depending on how rare or medium rare, or whatever you like your burger. I used to like medium rare burgers. Nah, I, I'm, yeah. I'm a medium person now. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, flip it over after it's done three or four minutes. And I use a couple large spoons or a couple spatulas. Put one sure. below it, put one in, uh, on top, and then just flip it over. Mm. And then place your favorite cheese on top. One, two, three, four slices, five, seven, sli eight, nine slices. I don't care. While it's in the butter. Okay. However much cheese, how, whatever kind of cheese you like. Just okay. I'd put a slice on because if you throw grated cheese on, it's going to go everywhere. So chuck a yeah, slice on. Yeah, I use sliced cheese. Yep. yep. I use sliced smoked Gouda, sometimes mozzarella. Ooh. Nice. Heck, sometimes even, you know, Kraft Deli Deluxe, which I know isn't real cheese, but, you know, yeah. if you have a, a hankering. 
Uh, then I cover and I cook that for another three to four minutes. And covering, even with foil, is good because it traps the heat and it allows the cheese to melt. Yeah. And then remove it and enjoy with bacon, aioli, and your favorite low-carb condiments. And also take some of that butter and drizzle it on top. <laughs> so what do you do with the butter left over at the end? You just throw it away, I guess. Well, that's a good question. And some of the people in the forum were asking me this too, because that's essentially ghee, you know? But it, but it's been seasoned, right? It's been seasoned and it's got little meat particles in it and stuff. So you yeah. might want to strain it or something and keep it in the fridge uh, so it doesn't get funky. But uh, I've just thrown it out, but I probably yeah. should keep it. Store it until the next time you have a burger, I guess. But the, yeah, okay. yeah. The, the, the point of having a medium rare burger is keeping it juicy, keeping it moist. Right. This is going to enable you to have a medium burger that's just as yeah. moist as a medium rare. Moist, delicious, juicy, tasty. Mm, <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I got. I got to try that. So my recipe this week uh, actually started out as an experiment. And uh, I had a cabbage in the fridge that I hadn't gotten to for a while. And I just cooked up a whole bunch of uh, pork shoulder. And I'd made pulled pork. Uh, we've spoken about this recipe before. Basically, mm. throw pork in a slow cooker for yeah. 12, 14 hours and, and then get medieval with it with a couple of forks and just shred <laughs> it all up. So basically, I take that slow cooked shredded pork, yeah. put it in a fry pan and get it crispy. So I'm basically I'm warming it up to make a meal. So I had the meat part of my meal cooked, which was this uh, – shredded pork. Yeah. And I, I thought to myself, you know, what I want is I want some vegetables that go with this, but I want something with a little bit of tart to it to mm. cut through the, the fattiness of the pork. Nice. Um, so uh, so I thought to myself, what I really want is I guess I want some vinegar, some sort of like tartness, and I want cabbage, but I don't really want coleslaw. Uh, I didn't have any uh, carrots. I didn't have any capsicum or bell peppers that I could have made coleslaw with, and I didn't have any mayonnaise at the time. So I just had this I had this cabbage sitting in the fridge, and I was thinking to myself, how can I use this? So I cut off two leaves for uh, basically for Julie and I, and I – finely sliced it. I guess it's almost called a chiffonade where you just finely slice this millimeter thin slices of this cabbage because what I wanted was I wanted the cabbage to be thin enough so that when I put it in the pan that I'd previously had the pork cooking and there was still a lot of pork fat left in the bottom of the pan it would wilt and it would pick up a lot of that pork fat. Yeah. So basically I'm starting off with a dirty pan, a dirty pan that's cooked some pork in it, <laughs> and it's got a little bit of pork fat. So now you could have actually had a pan where you just cook bacon in yeah. with bacon grease left over. Yeah, this fine. is how we're going to start. So right. we're going to basically take two leaves of, of cabbage, we're going to finely slice them, mm -hmm. and we're going to warm up that pan again, and we're going to toss it in, and we're going to cause those cabbage leaves to slightly wilt and mm. pick up a lot of that oil, a lot of yeah. that uh, pork fat left over. Yeah. Now, if it's a little bit dry, throw in some butter. <laughs> throw in a, a, a <laughs> tablespoon of butter. We're trying to give this – basically, we're making a fatty ve vegetable. I think uh, Sarah Holberg says, you know, uh, if you're going to serve vegetables, serve them with fat. Sure, <laughs> so, absolutely. Now, the other week we were cycling around Canberra and a lot of the fennel – there's wild fennel growing everywhere along the bicycle path. Oh, lucky. And so we cropped or foraged for a whole bunch of wild fennel. Our house is overflowing with fennel seeds, but you can buy fennel seeds from the – from the uh, supermarket, it doesn't matter. 
Toss in like a teaspoon of fennel seeds on top of it because pork, fennel and cabbage and vinegar are flavours that go together really well. So oh, yeah. we've got cabbage that has been cooked in fat. Yeah, with the fond from the down a little bit with the fond oh. from the pork left over. Oh. And now we're going to toss fennel seeds on top of that and they're mm. going to give that like aniseed sort of flavour, yeah, like a licorice kind of flavour to the cabbage. Mm. So now we've got the fond from the, po- the pork is starting to be picked up by the cabbage and by the fat, but we've still got they're still sort of fond of developing on the bottom of the pan. Mm-hmm. We're going to deglaze it with like a tablespoon of chicken stock and a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar. Oh, that sounds delicious. So deglazing basically is pulling the fond. That's the fonds where the flavor is. That's yeah. the sort of sticky bits on the bottom of the pan. Yeah. Um, deglazing is a process of putting a liquid in there that is going to enable you to pull all of those off with a spatula. So The French use wine a lot. They do. Stock, veal stock. I've tried white wine with this. It wasn't as nice. Yeah. Fat and vinegar, it's almost like a dressing. It's yep. almost like a salad. It's like a hot salad dressing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call this a hot pickle. Yeah. Hot pickled cabbage because that's really what it comes – it comes out – it's like got a slight aniseed flavor from the mm. from the fennel. And you know, if you don't have fennel, you could use caraway seeds too because those go really well with cabbage too. Yeah, absolutely. Or you could use thyme. You could yep. use cumin. You could use mm. – uh, uh, I think fennel, fennel I particularly like with pork. Yeah, me too. That's just me. Me too. But the apple cider vinegar just gives it like a, a tart sort of flavor. Tang in the back of the throat. Tang Woo! in the back of the right throat, there. fat in the front of the throat. Yeah. So, so you know, I highly recommend this. Carl and I are working on a, a cookbook for budget cooking, yeah. and this is going to be one of our recipes because this one head of cabbage that cost me about $2 yeah. has – it's it's about a quarter used, consumed, and it's lasted us for about I think maybe six meals this week. Yeah. So you know it's incredibly it's great. efficient in terms of I mean this is a vegetable course for your meal. Yeah. That's going to cost you maybe fifteen cents. Yeah. <laughs> so right. exactly. it's insane value. So that's my recipe. And you know, in that cookbook that we're writing, we're going to have a chapter on fasting. Yeah. <laughs> fasting cookbook yeah. chapter. Yeah. The first sentence will be, okay, don't eat anything. And then this page, intentional left blank. This one also, <laughs> intentional left blank. The, the rest of this chapter, intentional left blank. All right. Let's get out of here. We've been, we've been keeping these people attentive long enough. Yeah. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something you don't agree with, or some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post on one of our websites. Yeah, and you can follow us on Twitter at 2ketodudes, on Instagram at 2ketodudes. And of course, if you want to join our forum, it's free at www.ketogenicforums.com or forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, (laughs) t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.2keto.com. And now you can join the 2 Keto Dudes fan club. Go to 2ketodudes.com, click the fan club button, or go to fanclub.2keto.com. Just answer a few questions and you'll be eligible to win something every show. We don't know what yet. And if you feel like supporting our podcast and our forums, hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com. Yep. Or just go to donate.2keto.com. You can also see our podcast and other videos on YouTube at 
youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a great review on iTunes. Uh, you can also see Carl and I on Kickstarter at ketofest.com, where we did a video for KetoFest. Can't wait for that. Keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right, and we'll see you next time on, on Two Keto, keto Dudes. Dudes.